Uh, one of our fellows reminded me this week that our church turns seven on Tuesday. So let me begin by wishing you all a very happy belated birthday. It was fun flipping through some of the older pictures on the website and seeing how little some of you had changed <laughs> and others not so much. But in all seriousness, we have much to be thankful for. God has been so good to us, and we pray that he'll continue to bless us in the months and years to come. Now, for the past several weeks, our pastor, Aubrey, has been preaching a series of sermons on the vision of our church. And for the most part, he's simply been reminding us of what our church is all about, our commitment to the gospel, our desire to see people come to know Christ, and our efforts to be people of mercy and justice so that our city, this city, can be a great city for everyone who lives in it. Now, of course, that's not all we're about. The series isn't quite finished. There's still more to come. But today, we're going to take a break from that and listen to God's address to us from our New Testament reading, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. If you have a Bible, please find it. It's near the back, just a few pages shy of Revelation. <clears throat> and as you turn there, 1 John is this letter written by Jesus's beloved disciple, John the fisherman, the same one, we think, who wrote the book of Revelation and the gospel of John and, of course, 2nd and 3rd John. But in 1st John, he's writing to Christians all over modern-day Turkey, and he's teaching them how to stay committed to the gospel in spite of some false teachers who are leading them astray. And the climax of this letter, and arguably the most important part of it, is in chapter 4, where John urges these Christians to love. Beloved, let us love one another. Is there any more urgent message for our world today? I'm no doomsday prophet, but there does seem to have been an uptick, at least in our nation, of the occurrence of evil and perhaps the publicity of it. The shooting in Las Vegas comes immediately to mind. It was out, outrageous evil, and hardly anyone, regardless of their belief system, would shy from calling it just that, because ultimately... Every worldview must bow to the reality of evil. And what happened in Las Vegas was an undeniable evidence of our world's profound brokenness. Or take the recent accusations against Harvey Weinstein and all the women who are breaking their silence and telling these horrifying stories. Of course, right now, these are just accusations. We need to be careful about assigning blame outside of a trial. But the point is, are we really surprised? 
Hasn't this evil become almost routine? And this evil, we don't just see it in the big events that make headlines and affect our nation. We see it multiple times a day, even if it's in smaller, subtler ways in ourselves. Maybe they're easily overlooked, but we see this same evil in ourselves. And it's so frustrating. What I would give to be completely free of irritability. To actually be able to respond in love to every inconvenience, whether it's at home with my wife and kids, or at work when I'm interrupted, or even in my daily commute when I'm supposed to yield to a pedestrian. What I would give to actually be able to read the news, to read about evil, and instinctively feel sympathy, instinctively feel compassion, rather than hatred and annoyance. I mean, left unchecked, this stuff can be an enslavement. And I would wager that it's not just me, but that all of us, deep down, in the recesses of our hearts, have this ugly side that I've just described. It's this darkness in us that views other people fundamentally as an inconvenience, as something in our way, as a hindrance to our own happiness and self-fulfillment. And yet... God, knowing full well that this darkness resides within us, calls us to love. And not just any love, real love. In a culture where love is overly identified with feelings rather than an act of will, with pleasure rather than sacrifice, Christians must embody the true way of love that Jesus shows us. That true love is self-giving, self-sacrificing, a dying to self in order to love and serve others. It is most fundamentally a giving until it hurts. This is the essence of the Christian faith. It grows directly out of the belief that in Jesus, the one true God has revealed himself to be love incarnate, flesh and blood. And by the way, isn't that the name of our church? Church of the Incarnation. It's not just that we believe in love incarnate but that we seek to embody this love in new and fresh ways before the watching world. But how can we do this? We've just talked about how difficult it is. How can we overcome our gut reactions to evil and inconveniences? How can we possibly find the ability to give this world the love it needs? In order to be healed. 
Well, let's keep reading in our passage. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, John reveals to us here something about God's nature that makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. To say that God is love is to affirm that God exists as Trinity. That is, God can be love only because He is plural. Only because He is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because in order for love to be genuine, it's got to have an object, a beloved, right? An other. Love is love only if it's directed out, only if it seeks the good of another. Self-love is not fully love. A uniperson God cannot be love. Allah cannot be love. The deist God of the 18th century, whom many Christians have confused with the God of the Bible, cannot be love. The pantheistic God of New Age religions cannot be love because everything is really Him. So loving anything is loving Himself, Herself, Itself. These gods, these idols, cannot be love. And therefore, they can't express love to us. But the one true God is tri-personal. He was love and community from all eternity. And it's out of that love that he decided to create other beings to share in his love. So you see, love was not a new experience when God created the world. It's simply an extension of the love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always had for one another. And this has enormous implications for human life. If behind this universe is merely an all-powerful, self-centered, uniperson God then the basis of all life is power. And that's what should be most important to us. But if the creator really is love to the core, and he was sharing it from all eternity, then the basis of all life is love. Do you see? Like, if you really think that love is the most important thing in the universe then you have to believe in the Trinity. If you really think that relationships are more important in life than accruing wealth and power and success, it's only the Christian God that gives you a basis for believing that. And yet, 
Christianity goes even further. It doesn't stop there. If you look with me at verses 9 and 10, in this, or this is how, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, I think, I think we sometimes get the idea that there's an inner weird sort of contradiction in God. That the Father is this cold, distant, authoritarian figure who needs to be won over by the kind and loving and meek Jesus. But that's not the correct picture at all, is it? John says it's the love of God that Jesus reveals. His actions speak for the group, as it were. And furthermore, it's by this action, sending Jesus into the world, that God invites us to know him. This is how God wants to be known. There was a well-known pastor in the early 20th century, A.W. Tozer, who said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that might be a good question for us this morning. What do you think God is like? Do you think he's primarily angry? Primarily judgmental? Or do you think he's loving, but only if you get on his good side? That he needs to be appeased, talked down, restrained? John blows those images out of the water. Get them out of your head. He insists that above all, love is the defining characteristic of God. It's the essence of God. And if, he, and if you do not know him as love, you don't know him at all. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that Christians need to be converted twice. Didn't Aubrey share that? Once out of the world and then once back into the world. Um, could we say something similar about knowing God? That we may come to God knowing that he takes sin seriously. But ultimately, if we don't find ourselves standing at the foot of the cross and gazing at, at the length to which God's love went for us, then we don't really know who God is. John invites us to do just that. Maybe it's for the millionth time. Maybe, maybe it's for the first time. But this is how God reveals who he is to us. It's in the cross. And when we do that, when we get to know not the God of our wounded imaginations, but the God of the Bible, the God of real, eternal, genuine love, something extraordinary happens to us. 
as we press into God's love and plumb the depths of it, gradually, little by little, bit by bit, His love awakens love in us. John says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, this is a command. That's what the word ought implies. But don't let, this, don't let it fool you. Don't let it freak you out. What John is saying is common to human experience. If someone loves us, that creates an obligation on our part, doesn't it? We ought to love those who love us. If we hate those who do good to us, then we're ungrateful jerks. But if someone loves us, we're compelled to respond, aren't we? So parents, you want your children to respond obediently to you. And they ought to. You've given them many things. You've loved them. You've taken care of them. They ought to love you in response. But this happens in practice only if that ought is inspired by your love for them. Notice how God does it. God inspires loving obedience in us by demonstrating his love for us in Jesus, not by issuing orders and demanding compliance. Now, there is a place for orders, but orders will not be obeyed outside a context of love. That or they'll just be obeyed reluctantly. So do you want your children to obey you? Inspire their love by giving yourself to them. You see, the good news of God's love for us is that it's contagious. That as we get to know Him, we actually become like Him. And His way of doing things rubs off on us. Uh, the Catholic nun, Mother Teresa, she liked to refer to Christians, all Christians, as missionaries of charity. If you don't know about Mother Teresa, she's probably well, uh, most well-known for moving into the slums of Calcutta and founding this organization called the Missionaries of Charity. But in her mind, this wasn't a vocation uniquely hers. Every person she says, is to be a missionary of charity, a carrier of God's love to everyone, and especially to those who feel most unloved, most unwanted, uncared for, to those who often find it difficult to believe in His love because of their circumstances. And I love this. What motivated her love was this profound insight into God's own love for her. That God desired and longed and even thirsted to love and to be loved. So, uh, Jesus' words from the cross, I thirst, were for her the expression of this intense love. And she saw it as 
her calling to satisfy Jesus' thirst by giving herself to him and then pouring herself out for others. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? That God would be thirsty for our love and that he wants us to satisfy him. But as we come to know God's own love for us and God's desire to be loved, that's the very thing that compels us to be carriers of his love to others. And that's what John's getting at in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, of course, Christians aren't perfect. And that's not what John's talking about. He's talking about the purpose of God's love. Uh, that's what the word perfect means in the Greek. It's the word telos, which means to complete a race or to accomplish a goal. God's love has a purpose to it. He wants each one of us to receive it, yes. But even more than that, he wants each of us to imitate it. That's why he gives it to us. And I confess that before I came to Incarnation, I would listen to Aubrey talk about God being loved to the core. And I would feel uneasy about it. And surely this implies that God is weak or overly sentimental or passive. But as I've opened myself to that reality more and more, I've noticed a change in myself. And when I see old friends, they notice it too. I'm more prone to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm slower to judge a little bit. I'm more patient with my children. I'm more sympathetic toward people. And I'm not saying this to draw attention to myself. I'm just saying this to show that God's love is slowly changing me. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's leading me away from exasperation and impatience and cynicism. And it's calling me more and more into real, genuine, self-emptying love. How about you? How would your life change if you came to understand that God is love? If you came to see that being a carrier of God's love is the vocation that gives meaning to all others. If you came to see in your workplace that to love people is to recognize their gifts and help these to unfold. And to accept their wounds and be patient and compassionate towards them. If you came to see in your family that love must be inspired that in order for there to be love around the dinner table, there has to be first a massive self-outpouring on your part. And no doubt, this is hard work. We've said that. Love is difficult. But once you begin learning to give yourself to others as God gave himself to us, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. 
Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to be like this? Then build your life around the desire to know this God of love. Take a look at the gospel. If you've seen Jesus, if you've seen him in the major, seen him tempted in the wilderness, seen him passionately fighting the Pharisees who are oppressing his people, and then freely offering himself on the cross and powerfully rising again from the dead, when you have seen all of this, you have seen God who is love. Jesus did all of this out of love for us. God is love. And if you will come to him now and even in your most unlovable moments, then his radical, sacrificial, inexhaustible love can be perfected, completed, and formed in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.